Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Sabbath day, this beautiful weather, this time to come together and study. We ask that your spirit will join us today, your angels will join us. We want to see you more clearly today. Enlighten our minds. Push back the shadows that obstruct our ability to see you, that we may be in your presence. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number 12 in our quarterly, Loved and Loving, John's Epistles. And the title for this week's lesson is, John's Letter to the Chosen Lady. John's Letter to the Chosen Lady. And if you've read it, you know how it starts out, to the Chosen Lady. Or um, Who is the Chosen Lady and her children? Okay, some, some say the church, that's one, one option. Some suggest it's, it's just a real woman he knows with her biologic children. And, and some suggest it's a combination of both, that it was a real woman who happened to be the leader of a church group, and he was writing to her as the leader of this church worship group, and the children were the members of the church. That's the three possibilities. Which ones do you like? See, I like the third one. I like the third one. He was writing to a, a woman who happened to be leading out a little worship group or church group, and uh, the children were the members of the church. I like it a lot because it really, it really uh, does something to the whole, you know, sexism thing that uh, that some people use the Bible to to try to, to to promote, and it's consistent with many of the other aspects of Scripture where women were were in uh, leadership roles as judges and prophets. Uh, who were gifted by God with certain gifts. So I, I like that idea, but I don't think we can be concrete one way or the other and absolute. Somebody read for us the memory text, the Sabbath lesson, please. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Now my question, why... Will they not have God if they do not abide in the teaching of Christ? Me and my father are one. They don't know him. Other thoughts? Well, what was the teaching of Christ? You see, it says they won't have the Father if they don't abide in the teaching of Christ. So the question is, well, what was the teaching of Christ? There you go. His teaching was, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In John 14, 6-9, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know the Father as well. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that would be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So, what happens to a person who rejects the teaching of Jesus? He rejects the Father. So you can't have the Father if you reject the teaching of Jesus. Is that right? Because Jesus is the revelation of the Father. This is where we learn about the Father. This is where we come to the Father. This is where we know the Father. So does this then mean that someone has to have heard about Jesus in order to have God? No. Tell me why. Everything that can be known about God... Is, uh, is uh, been displayed through what it was made. Romans chapter one twenty, and who is it that made this earth? All things are made by him and through him. Without him, nothing is made that has been made. Jesus, yeah, okay. So notice the text, though, what it actually says. It doesn't say they cannot have God if they've never heard the teaching of Jesus. 
That's not what it says. It's to say, not can I have God if they don't abide in the teaching of Jesus. Do you, under, what, what do, you, do you think there's a difference between hearing it and abiding in it? Does it mean something different? Yes. See, not abiding in it assumes that they've heard it. And then if they don't abide in it, they've heard it and they've rejected it. You see, and that's why they can't have God, because they've heard the teaching of Jesus, but they don't like it. They prefer another version of God. And if you prefer another version of God to the truth, well, you're not with God anymore. You're with something else. It says in the text also, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching. What does it look like to go too far and not abide in the teaching of Jesus? What does that look like? So settle into the lies. So let's think about some examples. Consider, as we go through the lesson today, are these things that have taken the teaching of Jesus and gone too far? So they're no longer abiding in the teaching of Jesus. How about this? God will sit in judgment and mete out and pose penalties on the wicked. Think that one through. We're going to come to that in the lesson today. How about this? God executed Jesus in our place on the cross. Is that taking something too far? How about God is unforgiving except for the blood of his son softening him up? Is that going too far? How about the love of God is so great that everyone will be saved and no one will be lost? Is that gone too far? You see, we can take the teaching of Jesus and go so far that we're no longer abiding in what he taught. So as we go through the lesson, let's keep those things in mind. Somebody read for us 2 John 1 through 4. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received the commandment to do so from the Father. And the lesson asks us, after reading those passages, what word do you hear being appearing over and over again in those, in those four passages? Truth. What do you think John is referring to when he keeps using this word truth? Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, yeah. So you referring to, to the truth about? God. Any other thoughts? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, John 8.32. Truth about what? Is that only truth about God? Or, or is that truth about all aspects of life? Have you ever been in a circumstance that you were struggling, maybe in a relationship, and, and then you were praying, and then the truth about that circumstance came home to bear, and you got set free? <laughs> so it's, tr- it's a principle of life, isn't it? Truth heals. Doesn't he also reveal the truth about us? The truth about us about our condition, about our need for a Savior. Yeah. And that truth then leads us to Him, which sets us free from sin. Yeah. Second paragraph in Sunday's lessons, we continue on this thought. It says, Notice, too, that John's use of the word truth is combined with love in verses 1 and 3. To understand the nature of true love among Christians, a qualifier is needed, namely, truth. Love can be interpreted in a purely emotional, even sensual and superficial way. Christian love is true love, love expressed in the context of truth. What do you think about that? 
any examples? How about, how about from real life, examples, or from the Bible, examples of love expressed in truth? You're talking about loving your neighbor? Expressed in love. Or the truth expressed in love. How about when Jesus in the upper room looked at Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Was that truth expressed in love? How about when he then said to Peter, when you're converted, feed my sheep, after he tells him you're going to deny me three times? Was Jesus expressing truth to Peter yes. for, in, in love, preparing Peter for Peter's own stumbling that was about to come? As you know, I have many people come to see me with very various problems, and I have a lot of parents that come to see me with difficulty with their children, and often adult children. And this scenario I'm about to give you is a very common scenario I see with, with parents in my office. And see, if, uh, see, see what you think love and, and truth together might do in this circumstance. What about a daughter who is dating a guy that you, as a parent, believe is, is absolutely not qualified for her to be with? He is past normal college age. He's unemployed. Um, he's never finished school, moves from friend's home to friend's home, never keeps a job. He's got a family from previous relationships. I have this happen all the time. But your daughter's convinced this is the one for her. If you love her, what's the, what's the direction you go with truth in this situation? Do you speak to her? Do you ignore it? What do you do? Take her to visit the old girlfriends. Take her to visit the old girlfriends. Oh, okay. It's a, it's, it's a way of revealing truth. Okay. Okay. That's very innovative, but I like it if it could happen. Let him come and stay with you a week. Let him stay with you a week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not in the same room. Yeah. Do you think a week would be enough? Probably was enough in this case. Yeah. But if she has bent on this and nothing you say or do in love, you better accept it or else you'll lose your child and do the best you can. Yeah, yeah, but we're not, we're not at that point yet. Okay, we're not at that point. You're, she's actually, absolutely right. There comes a point that that's true. But right now, you are at the point where your daughter is convinced this is the right person. You're convinced that this is a destructive person. What do you do? Yes. You can talk till you're blue in the face, but if they're not listening to the truth, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter in what regard? To, toward the decision they're about to make? Right. But it does matter in a different way. See, my recommendation to people is that you sit your loved one down, and you have a loving, heart-to-heart revelation of truth outlining the facts and the evidences of why you think this way. And then, as been suggested here and here, you set your child free, your adult child free, to make up their own mind. And you support them in whatever decision they're going to make after you've told them, this is your decision, it's your life, whichever decision you decide, because there's a principle here. You can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. If the guy is truly not qualified, it will eventually come out. She will eventually recognize that. But here's the key. If you've never spoken to your child and told the truth to your child, then, uh, or if you do, when the day comes that the lights go on, there will be a great appreciation for, in your child for you for having loved them enough to warn them. But then don't go and say, I told you so. Well, no, there wouldn't be a need for that, would there? You see, does God love us enough to warn us about danger before we get into it? Does God leave us free then if we want to ignore his warnings to go into the danger and get hurt? 
And then once we get hurt, is God there to help us pick up our wounds? And are we often going back to God, thank you so much for telling me I should have listened. I am so sorry, Lord. It would have been so much better. I mean, is there, do we find God dealing with us this way? Yes. Well, sometimes the warning becomes a challenge and they try to prove you wrong. And that's not bad either. Yeah, that, that's, that can happen too. But they can't, your child can't prove you wrong in the development of the character of another person. In other words, your child can't go out and make this man suddenly have a good character. But I'd be reluctant to be too certain that my opinion is the one that's going to prevail and be right. They might, I might be wrong. Persons change in marriage, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. <laughs> Sometimes parents are singularly bad at judging characters of young people. I remember my mother wanted so badly to make this boy. It was such a lot of But he had her so badly. And, and there, there's just times when parents just don't really see what's real. And that's why I said, after you present the truth from your perspective, you leave your child free to make up their own decision. But having been having had the privilege of having your perspectives as part of their decision-making process, that's a very helpful thing, isn't it? Then not have had that privilege. Yes? Don't you think people are going to do what they're going to do no matter what you share with them? No, no. No, absolutely not. Some, there are many people who will take very seriously those perspectives and sit back and reevaluate. And, and what happens is this, usually, for the healthy person, the mature person, if somebody that they, that, that they know loves them, like a loving parent who's always done them well, comes to them with serious warnings, a mature person will say, you know what, this is still my decision, but my mom or my dad wouldn't tell me this if they didn't see something. Now, why am I not seeing it? And they might put off an engagement. They might take another extra six months of dating to, to evaluate and say, wait, let me see if there's something here or not. They may not make the decision, on the, and they shouldn't make the decision just on the other person's opinion, but it may lead them to step back, reevaluate, and look for further evidences they had not yet been examining. But, but you said they're the mature person. Yeah. When you're talking to a, a 22-year-old or an 18-year-old, they're, they're dead set on, I want to marry this person. Some are more mature than others. But, but again, again, there is, it's not just about the decision they're going to make. Even if they're immature and you, in love, give them this information and, lay, and they go and ignore it, later down the road they will remember that you tried to warn them and their confidence and trust in you will rise down the road. As long as you don't continue to pester them about it for the rest of their life. Yes, we're going to have to move on. Yes. But it doesn't depend on the relationship with the parent. Yes, of course. It's not the relationship there. You can talk to your blue in the face and they're going to say, I reject what you say. Sure, absolutely. If you've been beating your child your whole life, they're not going to listen to anything you, you say. Sure. <laughs> the context of the relationship makes a huge difference. Next paragraph in our lesson. It says, if we talk about truth, we are reminded of God, of, of Jesus, who is, is the truth, and of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit is with the believer forever, so truth is with them forever. Both truth and love ultimately point back to God and belong together in Christian faith and experience. Can you think of other biblical metaphors for truth? Other imagery the Bible uses to depict truth? Light? Is that, a, is that one the Bible uses? Wisdom, if you Proverbs, the Proverbs wisdom chapter. And how about a sword? 
the sword coming out of the sword of truth. Um, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. And then it says in Revelation 1.16, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What is it talking about? The word of And who's, whose mouth? This is Christ speaking truth. This is imagery, truth. Truth cannot be separated from God. So the question I have for you guys is, what does truth do to those who live in lies, who insist on holding to lies? What will truth do to them when they're faced with it? Do you've ever had the example of people in your life who don't want to deal with truth, and, and sometimes circumstances are such that they have to face it? What happens if they've been trying to run from it? Have you ever tried to present truth to somebody who didn't want to hear it? What do they do if they have the option? Do they stay and listen? Do they, they run away? And if they're, if they're in a circumstance where they have to face some truth that they're not really wanting to hear, do you see emotional distress? Do you see them, do you see them disturbed and upset? Revelation 19.21, the rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of his mouth of the rider on the horse. We were killed by the sword that came out of his mouth. What's the sword that comes out of the mouth? Truth. Truth kills them? Wait a minute, I thought it was some like imposition of power. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says, They perish because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. They hold the lies. The sword of truth comes out of the mouth and kills them because they hold the lies. So what does truth do to those who love lies? How does it make them feel? What do they want to do? It causes anguish. It causes suffering. It ultimately will destroy them if they're solidified in lies. And we are talking about truth and love together. So let's look at the love side. How about those who, who are just completely self-absorbed, self-centered, selfish people, have hardened their hearts against love? What happens when love, when they're faced with love? Does the Bible give us any wisdom on this? Romans 12.20 If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. What are these acts of? Acts of love. In other words, love him. Love your enemy. Have you heard that before? It says, if you love your enemy, what's Paul say happens next? In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Burning coals? What does that mean? It will hurt him. How so? How will it hurt him? You can see the, the contrast between the truth about himself and the truth about you. Oh. So if truth torments those who prefer lies, if love tortures those who are selfish, if that's what's happening, then, then what happens when the wicked one day come in the unveiled, full presence of God's character of truth and love? What happens in that moment? Hell for those. Yes, it's going to be tormented. Is this an imposed penalty? Is God in, inflicting this upon them? Or is this what happens when you've hardened yourself in lies and hardened yourself in selfishness when you are no longer veiled from the absolute purity of God's truth and love? But those of us who have been changed, as we read last week, to be like him, we shall see him face to face, for we are like him. This is our God we have waited for him. We'll be transformed to live in the presence of his glory. And then the bottom paragraph in the green, it says, We often look at the concept of love as something good in and of itself, regardless of the context. When, however, can love be very destructive? Have you ever experienced the reality of how love, outside of truth, can be so terrible? 
How does the experience help you better understand the importance of love in the context of truth as opposed to outside of it? Does anybody have a... Uh, as you read this, get like confused? Get like a puzzled, like, what? Can you actually have love outside of truth? No. No, it's not love. Yes. I think part of it is you put love in parenthesis, and I think what he's trying to help us distinguish is there is love that we call love that is actually ultimately, if you trace it back to the motivation, is selfishness. We've called it love. We've labeled it love because we want to believe it's love, but in fact it's not. And I think that would be the love in, in quotation marks. Real love, if you take it all the way back to the core, is unselfishness. It's not about me and how I feel at the end of this. It's actually about what was good for you. I think it's beautifully said. Other comments, thoughts? People state the truth, though, in a very unloving way. Mm. I mean... Yes. They can state the facts. They can state the facts in an unloving way. But godlike truth is more than facts. Godlike truth is always loving. And love, godlike love, is always truthful. And, and this, is, this is the deception. He's pointing out the deception here. You see, when you read about uh, God in the, in the Bible, God is described as the Spirit or Father. God is love. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. So God is, is the unification, the perfect wholeness of truth and love. What Satan tries to do, Satan is a divider. He's a splitter. He wants to divide these aspects up. And so one of Satan's strategies is to have movements that are, appear to be truth-oriented movements, but devoid of love and compassion. And then he has movements that are appearing to be compassion, acceptance, love movements devoid of truth. Both of these are deceptions. Neither one are actually true. Because genuine love will always speak the truth in love. And what's the purpose of that? If you have a child who's 13 years of age and started smoking, if you love the child... Well, we don't want to offend him. We don't want to upset him by telling him he's doing something wrong. We don't want to, you know, or if you love that child, you speak the truth in love. This is destructive. You're going to kill yourself and maybe even at that age discipline in, in love. Or do you just accept and never say anything negative? That's not love. That's not love. Because love is wanting the best interest of the other person and it is in the best interest of that child that they not be a smoker. Yes? I think the last week looking at the case of the, the little girl out in California that was kidnapped and held has been a, tremendous to me as far as understanding a lot of these concepts. There is a lot of truth that little 11-year-old girl doesn't have. There's a lot more truth that her two daughters raised in captivity don't have. Love says we don't just smack them up the side of the head with all of the truth all at once, even though it is the absolute <coughs> truth. And I think that's the way God deals with us There's a, in what you're saying. Truth and love have to be mixed together. Truth has to come in a loving context. And I think God's been doing that for the last 6,000 years. There's been a lot of truth that God could have hit us with. But love has restrained him. Because? Because it would harm us. What did he say to the disciples? I have much to tell you, but you cannot bear it. It's not that I'm not willing. You can't handle it. That's what you're saying. Right. Yeah, I think that's a great insight. So I think those are the ways that 
truth and love have to be? Let's jump to Thursday's lesson. Communicating with one another. In the second paragraph, it says, The message that John communicates is quite strong. When it comes to the Antichrist, John leaves no room for negotiation or compromise. We are reminded of Paul's attitude when he wrote in Galatians about, If an angel come with another message, let him be anathema. So the question is, Antichrist. What is Antichrist? Is it only Satan? No, anybody that's against God. She says, anybody that's against God or against Christ. Would you agree that it's any, any person, any angel, any institution that opposes God or opposes Christ? Are we comfortable with that? It's a little more than that. In Greek, the word anti means instead of, more than it means against. So it could be somebody pretending to support God, but it could really be replacing God. Okay, if you do that, it's, it's against and replacing. Because you can't replace God and be supporting him at the same time. And against God would be pretty obvious, but replacing God, that could be more subtle. Yeah, so I like that. So it's against God in a subtle way of appearing like you're for him. I mean, a form of godliness. But... A form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Okay, I like that. So keep that in mind as we go through then. Um, what would Antichrist, this idea of, well, maybe we're for him, but we're really opposing the message of Christ, look like today? False worship. False worship. Well, let's talk about that. Would Antichrist be um, something that would twist or distort or lead us down a different path than Jesus led us down? Yeah. Everybody agree with that? So, Jesus said, John 5.22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So if Jesus taught that the Father judges no one, and we have Christian teachers standing up and saying, the Father sits in judgment and will mete out punishment on the wicked, are they leading us down the path that Jesus led us down? Or are they leading us down a different path? Is that part of Antichrist? Yes. Interesting. Because this is commonly taught. Hmm. Well, let's give us some more text. John 8, 15, Jesus speaking. You judge by human standards, I pass judgment on no one. John twelve forty seven to 50. As for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very word which I spoke will condemn him in the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Back to our original text here, why we can't have the Father if we reject Jesus? Because he's speaking only what the Father told him to say. He is the embodiment of God, the fullness of God dwelled in him bodily. So we see the the Father's attitude and will revealed in Christ. And what did Christ say about judgment? Is he going to sit in judgment over those? Do you hear doctrines where the Godhead sits in judgment and decides who's guilty, who's saved, who's lost, decides how much punishment to mete out on the wicked? Is that the message of Jesus Christ? No. He says, there is a judge. It's the very words that I spoke. What does he mean by that? The truth. The truth itself. Your very condition. You either have been reconciled and restored to be like me, because you trust me and believe the Father and I are one, or you have rejected the message I give and closed your heart to me. And therefore, what happens when you prefer lies and come into the presence of truth? 
Here's another one from Jesus, Matthew 12, 33 through 37. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings forth evil out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted. And by your words you'll be condemned. What's judging them? Put this together with, with, with the two previous ones. Does, does God have to sit in judgment and make a decision to determine whether somebody's heart is evil or somebody's heart has been healed or is it evident by their own, own words coming out of their mouth, their own character, their own, their own heart reveals itself? And then it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than two-edged sword, penetrating and dividing, sold in marrow, judging the thoughts. In other words, the judge is the truth itself. So if someone were to preach another message of judgment, the, the great tribunal sitting before a God and, and, and having your case weighed in a court of law like we have on earth, is that the message that Jesus brought? No. No. That's a substitutionary method. Someone standing in Christ's place, we call that Antichrist. <laughs> and that is the message that has gone through most of Christianity. And you wonder why, you know, Jesus said, when the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, the end will come. With television, a satellite, radio, internet, do you understand a, a gospel has gone to the whole world? There's not a place in the world that hasn't heard a gospel. But they haven't heard the gospel of the kingdom of love. They've heard the other gospel. That's why the end hasn't come. And it's our job to take the, the true gospel to the world as a witness to all nations. Monday's lesson. Somebody read Second John 4-6. through 6. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands, as you have heard from the beginning. His command as that is that you walk in love. And you have heard from the beginning. Uh, somebody read now for us on Monday. After we read that, then go straight to the first paragraph, Monday's lesson, which begins verse 4. Verse 4 is an encouragement for both the church and John. It is stimulating and encouraging for church members to hear that the elder rejoices greatly that they are walking in the truth. It motivates them to continue their Christian life in the truth, just as the Father has commanded them. The commandment to walk in the truth may be found in 1 John 3, 23, where he is calling us to believe in Jesus and to love one another. What do you think is being talked about in these passages here? Is it talking about the Ten Commandments? A lot of silence. I heard some yeses. It's talking about the Ten Commandments. Other thoughts? We in agreement? Possibly the Sermon on the Mount as well. The Sermon on the Mount, yeah, because that had a powerful message. Yeah. Are the Ten Commandments included in what's being talked about here? Yes. Oh, yeah, a lot more yeses on that one. But is the message broader than the Ten Commandments? Yes, yes they are. Um, if we attempt to make this passage speak of the Ten Commandments only, are we doing God's cause a good service? Yes. No. I heard a yes. Ten commandments are 
Yeah, they are. Hmm. So, so some people think that if we make this the Ten Commandments only, we're doing good service. We're, we're expanding the meaning. Some people are said, said, said shaking no. Let's give us some examples here. Um, the questions we want to talk about, um, because he's talking about love in this passage. How are the commandments and love related? We all, can, can love be commanded? I, I command you to love me. What happens when you try to use power and authority to pressure the rightness of your, your affections on someone? What happens when you do that? Well, Ty Gibson uh, told a story about a lady named Linda. And I'm going to do my best Ty Gibson impersonation and tell you the story as Ty would tell it. Of course, he tells better stories than I do. Linda was eager to get married, but there weren't a lot of prospects on the horizon. She became very eager to meet someone and was somewhat desperate that she would not find anyone. And then one day she met Herman. He was so polite and courteous. He opened doors for her and and she was so thrilled. He was definitely Herman, her man. (laughs) And after an appropriate courtship, Herman proposes and she immediately said yes. And they were married. They went off on a honeymoon to a very nice place and had a wonderful honeymoon. And then the first day back after the honeymoon was over at 5 a.m., Linda is awakened with a bright light. She opens her eyes and there is Herman at the foot of her bed saying, rise and shine, the honeymoon is over. We need to get down to real life. She noticed he was holding a piece of paper in his hand and he presented it to her as the first of many lists yet to come. He had spelled out in great detail her responsibilities in two-week segments. March 1 to March 14. 5.30, rise and shower. 6, begin breakfast, see attached menu. (laughs) 6.15, wake Hermie Cuddles with a gentle kiss and turn on his shower. (laughs) 6.45, serve breakfast, do not forget the grapefruit. 7.15, begin breakfast cleanup while husband brushes his teeth. 7.25, meet Hermie Cuddles at the door with an appropriate jacket. Be sure to pay attention to the weather and say goodbye with a smile and a kiss. 7.30, finish breakfast cleanup. 8 o'clock, free time. 8.15, house cleaning Cleaning supply list and more detailed instructions are attached. Monday, north rooms. Tuesday, east rooms. Wednesday, north, south rooms. Thursday, west rooms. And Friday, the garage. 11 o'clock, balance checkbook. 12 o'clock, lunch, whatever you like, except for the marked items. See attached list. 12.30, miscellaneous duties. On Monday, car maintenance and car wash. Tuesday, dry cleaning and banking. Wednesday, shopping. Thursday, wash the windows. Friday, yard work. 3.30, Dinner prep, see attached menu. 4.30, meet husband at the door with kiss and hang up his coat. 5, serve dinner. 5.45, dinner cleanup. 6.15, free time. See list of suggestions. 6.45, draw Hermes bath. 7 o'clock, do next day's ironing. 7.45, hand husband towel as he exits the bath. 8 o'clock, neck and back massage for the man of your dreams. Nine o'clock, lights out, pleasant dreams, sweetheart. (laughs) Linda was given a new list without fail, only with slight variations, every 
two weeks. As the years drug on, and they were dragging. (laughs) Ten years into this relationship, Hermie Cuddles drops dead of an unknown cause. Praise God. (laughs) She didn't know what to do, to grieve or to rejoice. (laughs) Then she made a vow that she would never, ever marry again. But after three years of being single, she met another guy named Michael. He was so much like Herman in some ways. He was always kind and polite and courteous and opened the door for her and showed her great respect. And she kept telling herself, no way, no way, no way, no way. But then one day, Michael popped the question and she couldn't seem to help herself. And she said yes. Then came the honeymoon. And the first day after the honeymoon, she awakes, awakens at 5.30 a.m. with a start and saw Michael standing at the end of her bed with a piece of paper in his hand. She jumps up into a karate pose, <laughs> yanks the paper from his hand, rips it in two, throws it on the floor, at which time Michael looks at her and says, Linda, that was a poem I wrote for you last night after you fell asleep. <laughs> she was so sorry. She picked up the paper, put the pieces together, and read it, and it broke her heart. As she was reading the poem, Michael came and served her breakfast in bed. And no list was forthcoming. Ten years passed being married to this wonderful man. And one day she was doing spring cleaning, going through the old things in the attic, and came across some old shoeboxes full of lists given to her by Herman the Horrible. (laughs) She pulled out one of those lists and began to read. And the strangest realization came over her. She said quietly to herself, Wow, I do all these things for Michael, and I never think about it. What's the point of the story? What do we learn from this story? What do we learn from this story in relation to the commandments of God? She says the angels were unaware of the commandments. They were unaware of the list. How do we on earth, how do we as a church, how do we as Christians approach the commandments? Like that list? Here's all the things you better do. Here's all the things you better not do. And does life become horrible? Yeah, it does. This begs the question then, what is the purpose of the commandments? Love becomes our nature. Ah, point out sin, to diagnose our sickness. Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it says, The law was added so that that trespass or transgression might increase. What does that mean? Be aware. Become more aware. So that we would become more aware. It would expose it. It would make it visible that we would see, Whoa, there's a whole lot of ugliness out here. And then 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Check this out. Who is the law for? Since we know that the law is good if one uses it properly, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he has entrusted to me. Who is the law given for? The Ten Commandments. Who is it for? It says it's not for the righteous. It's for the wicked. Do you ever feel as a member of the church that, at least in this church, we hammer the law, the commandments, 
the commandments, the commandments. If you're righteous, it's not for you. But if you're wicked, then you see the joy and the pleasure of the righteous and you realize that you could be set free. So the purpose of the law then for the wicked is to do what? It says in Romans, to expose or to diagnose or to reveal our sickness, to reveal our terminal condition. So the metaphor, the, the, the Ten Commandments are like an MRI of the soul. If you're sick and you've got something wrong and you're not feeling good and that you go to the doctor and he puts you in an MRI scanner, what's the scanner doing? It's, it's looking in the inward parts, in the places that you can't see yourself, to find any defects. This is what the law is given for, to look at the inward parts of the heart, to expose to us the defects. So in the metaphor of the MRI, we'll read the the First Timothy text again, and it goes like this. We know that the MRI is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the MRI is not made for healthy people, but for those who are sick and diseased. The suffering, the ill, and all those who are dying, and all activities that are contrary to the principles of healthy living that conform to the model of health that the blessed God has entrusted to me. Does that make sense? That's right. You see, the, the, the MRI, if you go to the MRI scanner and it points out you've got a tumor in your lung, do you then need to appease the MRI scanner? <laughs> do you need to work hard to get the MRI scanner to be happy with you? You need to substitute someone else's body. Do you need to put somebody else in the MRI scanner and get scanned and then have their, their scans go into your record book? Your medical records. This is commonly taught, folks. Jesus went in the scanner, and he gets scanned by the law, and his, his, his perfect righteousness gets stuck into our record books, and then when they open up the record of you, they don't see the, the scans of the tumors in your character. They see the perfect righteousness of Christ. Who, would, who, who wants you to think that? Somebody who doesn't want you actually to get well. Someone wants you to, to actually think that all is good with you when all is not good with you. And this is, this is the, the various doctrines that we teach about forgiveness, that Christ died so that we could have forgiveness. It comes up in our quarterlies constantly. Imagine that you're a doctor, and you have a patient who has skipped their last ten appointments. They smoke two packs a day. They drink a fifth of vodka a day. Um, they don't take their blood pressure medicine. They don't take their diabetes medicine. And they come in after a couple of years of going like this with dizziness, nausea, headaches, uh, and they're feeling really bad. Do you say to them, it's okay. I forgive you for missing your appointments. Now, maybe they're feeling so guilty, you need to say that so they know that you still care about them. Uh, if you do, is that all you need to do for them? I forgive you. You go on home. What do they need? They need healing. That's the issue with us. God forgives, but will forgiveness heal us? No, Christ came so that we could be healed, that we could be restored, that we could be Christ-like in heart again, that we could be like him. That's why he came. And the commandments were given as a tool to help diagnosis, not as a cure. But Tim, yes. what about the first chorus of response for the righteous is loving God and the last six is loving your neighbor? That's right. And so, and so one way to look at the commandments is that they're this diagnosis. But you notice they, don't, they actually say, um, and Christ said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. That is a positive statement. Love. The commandments are not written in that way. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. 
Thou shalt not have. Thou shalt. Thou shalt no other gods before me. Thou shalt not take into thee any graven image. Yeah. Yeah. So is the law the treatment remedy? Is the law the remedy? Is the Ten Commandments what we need in order to get well? Or is the Ten Commandments the diagnostic tool that shows us that we need help from some other source? Now, it is also, not only is it a diagnostic tool, as was said over here, it is also a promise. Um, when I was in med school in Memphis, uh, one of the hospitals out there, if you walked into the lobby, there was this giant seal uh, on the floor of the lobby. And uh, this hospital was a tuberculosis hospital. If somebody got tuberculosis in the old days, they had to go into a quarantined hospital until they either died or got well. Now, imagine you're in that hospital. You're quarantined in this hospital. Now, what is the purpose for the quarantine, by the way? Are they keeping you here because they want to punish you? No. No. Well, they're protecting others, but they're also treating you. They're not just locking you up and ignoring you. You're getting medical treatment in the hospital, trying with all the mechanisms and methodologies they know how to try and heal you and with the human limitations of modern medicine. But still, the goal in that quarantine situation is to heal you, not punish you. Now, let's say that uh, the symptoms of having tuberculosis is fever, spitting up blood, coughing frequently. And, and on the wall, they post you know, these, these things. And it says, before you can leave this quarantine, you shall not have fever. You shall not cough. You shall not spit up blood. And you see that list and you go, you know what? I want out of this place. I don't like being here. So when the doctor comes around to examine me, I'm going to work really hard not to cough. And I'm going to work really hard not to have fever. So the doctor says, how do you feel? I'm, I'm doing really good, really good. Fine, I just ignore that. Or how about we get the nurses to arrest the, erase the record books. When the doctor comes around, we, we don't show any symptoms. No fevers are recorded or anything. So, so they can't see the record of how sick we are. You see, the earth is quarantined. Quarantined from the rest of the universe. And, and God is pouring out all the agencies of heaven. The Holy Spirit, His Son, His angels, all the agencies of heaven are constantly working to heal us. Now the devil doesn't want us to get well, so he's constantly trying to trick us into, let's believe that the best thing to do is, is erase the records and not have the Father look at us. Let's have a healthy substitute stand there when the, when the doctor comes around to examine, rather than what David says, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. You know, we shouldn't be saying, Doc, if there's something wrong with me, find it. Find it and, get, and, and cure it. Find it and cure it. Shouldn't we be saying, Father, search me and see any wickedness, any sin. Find it. Get rid of it. I don't want it anymore. And so, on the wall, the doctor then comes around and says, look, if you trust me, I love you. If you trust me and follow my plan, I promise you, you will not cough. You will not have fever. You will not spit up blood. And the Ten Commandments are, hey, if you, if you trust me, I will write my law in your heart and mind, the New Covenant, Hebrews chapter 8 and 10. And if you trust me, I promise, you will not have any other gods before me. You will not make any graven images. You will not take my name in vain. You will remember my Sabbath day. You'll honor your mom and dad. You won't murder. You won't lie. You won't cheat. And you won't even covet. It won't even be in your heart. If you trust me, that's what you're going to look like. That's what the Ten Commandments are, both a diagnostic tool and a promise from God of what will look like. Yes? The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he asked him, have you kept the commandments? And he said, I've done it all my life. And yet he wasn't willing to do the full extent of showing love to others. So had he actually kept the... People can keep the commandments. 
had he kept the commandments? No. Well, in terms of I've never killed anybody. And no, he didn't. Honor my no, he didn't. But that's not it. The, the full extent of the commandments. He didn't. No, he didn't even keep those. He didn't even keep those. See, because Jesus said, you say if you commit murder, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. Okay, he may not have carried out behaviorally, but I will, I will bet you that that particular Jewish person had just as much bigotry and, and elitism over the, the, the various Samaritans and others around that he despised them in his heart as well. But don't you see a lot of Christians that think they are keeping the commandments, but they don't have the love of God in their heart? Yeah, so, the, so then are they really keeping it? No. Yeah, that's... Yeah, and that's, so, so she, so yes, and the human mind is deceitful above all things and utterly wicked. Who can know it? And why do they think they're keeping the commandments of God? Because we've made the commandments of God a rules-oriented behavior thing that you have to do. And Paul makes it clear in Romans, he said, you know, when the commandment came, I found myself, I thought I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I thought I did all this stuff. But then when the commandment came, I was undone. What commandment? The tenth commandment. You see, all the first nine are behavioral. You can behaviorally, as you're suggesting, do all these things. But the tenth one shows the real issue. Thou shalt not covet. It can't even be in your heart to do it. And the Pharisees, that the one that you're talking about, this, this, this uh, guy that came to Christ and, and, and Paul, they actually had this idea of what righteousness looked like. This is what a righteous man looked like. You see your neighbor's wife, and she's really hot, and you want to do bad things with her. But you have enough willpower to say no. That's righteous. <laughs> it's in your heart to do the evil, but you have self-restraint and don't let yourself do evil. But you think about it. That's not righteous. Christ said it's not even in your heart to do it. It's offensive to think such things. That's what righteousness looks like. And Paul was like, whoa, I've got this all backwards. I thought it was just the behaviors I do. Now, holding back the things that my true heart wants to do, that's not righteous at all. And that's what happens. And, and see, when we get our understanding around the real purpose of the commandments, does that invalidate them? No. It doesn't invalidate them at all. Any more than an MRI becomes invalidated when you get healed and no longer have a tumor. MRI is not invalidated. It's just as good a tool as it ever was. But once the law is written on the heart and mind, there's no purpose uh, for the Ten Commandments to diagnose you as ill anymore because you're not ill. And the other aspect about this when we focus on the commandments is rules. You see... It can become very self-focused. What I can do, what I can't do, what I should be doing, how I must behave. It turns our mind in on ourselves. And there is a purpose for that. The commandments are given to turn your mind inward for one reason. And what is that reason? To show you that you are terminal. That your condition by itself, unassisted from God, is hopeless. That you're going to die. It's to diagnose you. Remember the first step of the 12 steps? We admit that we are powerless over our addiction and our lives have become unmanageable. J- Jesus said, I have not come for the healthy, but I've come for those who are sick. The sick need the physician. So the, one, of the, one of the deals is that the commandments are to make us look inward for the purpose of realizing that all of our righteousness is filthy rags. That we are, as it says in, I think, Isaiah, we have sores from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet. We are completely putrid in our own strength, we need a remedy. And once it does that, we are to take our eyes off the commandments and focus our eyes on, keep your eyes fixed on, it says in Hebrews, Christ, Christ who is our source of our healing. 
And the commandments are useful as, as, as we walk with Christ. If we start thinking that we're all arrived and we're all good and we're all righteous, then glancing back at the commandments will help us realize that we're not all that. Yes? I think it's useful, too, to think about the commandments, not only in the diagnostic sense, but also in the discipline sense. The children of Israel were children, and slavery created a kind of broken community which needed some discipline to get started. The Ten Commandments helped provide that. That's why they're negative. Children need negative commandments to get started. Because more inward, as you put it. I think that's well stated. Parents, um, and I think this is what we can close on. I think you're exactly right. And, and the New Testament tells us that the commandments were given as a, an aid to lead us to Christ, as the as a paraclete or, or as, a, as a schoolmaster, the schoolmaster there to, to lead us to Christ. Uh, I've had the opportunity to, to do some presentations to some 8th and ninth grade boys on sexual education. Now, yeah, good for you, she says. Um, <laughs> Now, I can tell you, you can try the, uh, the mature approach of how when you love others, you don't want to damage their character, you don't want to ruin their integrity, the, ruin their self-worth and self-esteem, you don't want to exploit another for your own self-gratification and all this kind of stuff. You can try this with 14 and 15-year-old boys. It doesn't work well. They, they, they hear it, and it's like, whatever. So I brought out the pictures of sexually transmitted diseases. And I showed them the pictures of what it looks like when you get a sexually transmitted disease. And suddenly, and, and now I'm not playing on love anymore. I'm playing on fear. Suddenly I had their attention. <laughs> suddenly they were much more interested in having some more appropriate conduct. Not based on the love for another person, but based on self-preservation. Okay. And so I think you're right. When we're children, when we're immature, sometimes the place to start is with fear. But fear is for children. Fear is for children. Perfect love casts out all fear. And as long as we're still operating in fear, and this is why sometimes you'll see God thundering at Sinai, loving parents, sometimes you'll raise your voice, sometimes you'll have to give them, if you don't brush your teeth, you're going to get a spanking. And you know it's not about the spanking, it's about you don't want their teeth to rot. So sometimes with children, yes, we have to use fear, but it's never the ideal. Our goal is that our children will grow up, and would you love it as parents if your children grew up as adults and remained afraid of you? This is what a lot of Christians still teach that we should be afraid of God. This is why he can't come, because if we're afraid of him, we're running the other way. And God wants us to grow up, so we realize there is never, ever a reason to be afraid. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you do love us so much, that when we're children, when we're, when we're arrogant and prideful, that when we're, we're blinded to your true nature, when we're going a path of self-destruction, that you will not simply turn a blind eye and abandon us, that you will come with every agency in your disposal including thunders if we need it, including frightening us if that's what it takes to get us to stop and listen, because the fear of the Lord begins our wisdom. And as we walk with you, Lord, we'll come to know what Jesus has taught us, that there is no need to be afraid, that you are exactly like Jesus and you would rather die than hurt us. May we come to experience that love and that trust. May we come to see, the, see you clearly, that we can communicate clearly to this world around us. Because we want this gospel of your kingdom of love to go to the world so that the whole world will hear it and that you can come and we can be with you forever. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.